you need to go really deep into four different branches of mathematics. You need probability theory, statistics, linear algebra, and you need calculus. Specifically on the calculus side, you're going to need to have a strong understanding of derivatives and partial derivatives. If you can get, the good news is you can get all that for free. Okay. There's Khan Academy. There's Wikipedia. There's chat GPT, right? You don't even need to go to school. <laughs> Just ask chat GPT to teach you. It'll even, you can even ask it to quiz you and it will quiz you and it will grade your answers. It's ridiculous. What a time to be alive. Hello everyone. And welcome to another episode of the podcast where we engage in deep conversations at the intersection of technology, business, philosophy, and psychology. Today's guest is Ken Miller. He's the CTO and co-founder of Fathom, an AI podcasting platform focused on disrupting this ever-growing space and why this is going to change the way we produce and consume content forever. In this episode, we discuss what Fathom exactly is and how it's creating an ecosystem for listeners and producers of podcasts. But also, we talk about their amazing new tool called Podium, which is now able to automatically generate show notes, transcripts, timestamps, and even social posts for your episodes in just a matter of seconds. If you're a podcaster, you should definitely try it out with all links in the show notes below. In addition to all of this, we also speak about how artificial intelligence is impacting society. We discuss AI's exponential progress, especially around ChatGPT, the intersection of AI and podcasting, the interesting question of can AI create its own podcast content? We also discuss the proliferation of misinformation, but also on how to be a world-class CTO and leader, inspiring the next generation of AI engineers and much more. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears and it helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Ken Miller. know when you spoke to me about the chat gpt stuff i think that's really important i think there was a there was this diagram that was like going through the internet a couple of weeks ago about or maybe like late last year uh, there was like one circle with like 175 billion parameters and then that's chat gpt3 and then chat gpt4 is like potentially one trillion parameters right so this exponential leap in sort of going through, you know, what chat TV could potentially be. What are your thoughts about all of that stuff? You know, with, with these kinds of models, really, I, I think that what we're going to see over the course of the next two years is not so much an expansion in the number of parameters or like the size of the model, um, but a fundamental improvement to the training data used to train the model and uh, a bit of advancement on the fundamental uh neural architecture, as well as um, less of a focus on unsupervised or semi-supervised training and more of a focus on reinforcement learning. Um, one of the huge drawbacks of these large language models um, is that <clears throat> they're kind of like stuck in time, so to speak. After you train them, and I, I think they have, they have some kind of disclaimer, uh, you know, that the knowledge is only current up to, you know, uh, the end of 2021 or, or, you know, something along those lines. Um, so they're stuck in time and, uh, you know, how the human brain works is basically you live out your day, 
you learn some new stuff, right? There's a lot of uh, carrot stick type reinforcement training happening, right? Especially if you're very young, um, you know, you get introduced to the hardness of concrete really fast and then you go to sleep and it's while you're sleeping that uh, basically the information that you learn during the day is then all, all of those synaptic weights are being set while you sleep. That's why if you deprive yourself of sleep, you're actually unable to learn new information uh, that's stored long-term. So, you know, some people have said, well, maybe we need to have neural network sleep. I think what we'll probably see is something more along the lines of a kind of hot swapping, you know, that, that happens. Everybody will be using one version of uh, a generative uh, large language model while the other one's training, and then they'll just swap places and then, then that will continually happen. I, I really think that the next iteration of uh, large language models really needs to overcome this stuck in time problem. Does the stuck in time problem get better though, as, as, as the level of learning does increase and reinforcement does take place. Do you think the stuck in time problem is more of a challenge for the underlying in the model itself that's uh, flawed or is it something that's just an advancement as the AI becomes much more intelligent? No, I mean, really what it boils down to is uh, a problem with the training method. Uh, you know, we, we gather basically when you're training up these large language models, you're taking a snapshot of the internet. And I mean, this is, is very, very high level, but you're taking a snapshot of the internet at a point in time. And then you're using all of that data in order to train the model, right? So, uh, all of its synaptic weights or its parameter weights are being set based on that information when the snapshot was taken essentially. And unless you're continually adjusting those weights, continually training and having it learn much the way that the human organism does, uh, then it's knowledge or, or the knowledge that's essentially been compressed and encoded within those synaptic parameters uh, is only going to be representative of the data of the training data that, that it's seen. Now you can overcome this um, a little bit um, through prompting. Right. So let's say you ask a question uh, or you give a prompt to one of these large language models. You could perform a search and inject into that prompt current information. Right. And it's going to understand that because it's gained a fundamental knowledge of, of human language and, um, you know, maybe to a certain degree, human reasoning. Um, so you can overcome the problem a little bit that way. But. I think in order to uh, have some, some of the greatest advancements or, or to, to take it to the next level, we're really going to have to see continual uh, relearning, you know, or continual training of these models. Just stepping back a little bit, does the idea of just with all of this stuff happening right now with ChatGPT and all of these larger language models and the the pace at which this type of space is accelerating. Does it scare you or does it excite you? Or does, is it both? <clears throat> I, I think personally, I'm more excited uh, about all of the developments happening. Um, I can understand though and empathize with people who are a little bit scared, both from the standpoint of, you know, is my job safe? Is what I do for a living uh, safe? And then also, 
um, to maybe a lesser extent, those who are kind of like uh, doomsayers and uh, think that AI is an existential threat. Um, I think that there's a lot to be excited about. I think that these are uh, big toys that we're playing with here. And when you're playing with very powerful um, constructions in this universe, that, that you do need to have the requisite level of responsibility. Yeah, I think that's uh, something in and of itself, the ethics, the morality of what AI can offer and what it doesn't know and what it does know, because I think we have to guide its faith Faith. a little bit. And that's also scary because I've seen that, you know, things, it is the double-edged sword at the end of the day. And I know that for a lot of people who are not well acquainted with technology per se, but they're sort of the end users, they are always uh, exposed uh, to technologies that they don't understand, whether it be how do they get the Instagram feed? How, how do they know what, uh, you know, what sort of ads are appearing on their screen based on what they're saying and what they're looking for? And that sort of education is important, uh, especially when, um, you know, AI is, is moving so quickly. Um, do you think that there's sort of like a role to play in schools where education um, of AI and AI just in and of itself needs to be taught? That's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think that maybe not so much AI, but technology in general, you know, there, there should mm. be um, a, a class uh, or we should be educating our children about the, the fundamental nature of technology. Or uh, I think over time there's going to be more sort of like philosophical, like theories of technology and theories of technological um, progression. I think there's a lot of other subjects in school that that maybe we should focus on first, like, uh, you know, how to do your taxes um, that we somehow neglect to teach everybody. Um, But yeah, the, the thing with AI is, you know, not unlike a computer chip, you know, you have a lot of people, I mean, most people walk around with a cell phone and this is a very, very advanced piece of technology and they have no fundamental understanding of how exactly it works. And they seem to be okay with that. You could also look at this uh, on a more universal level and say that the vast majority, the vast majority of us are living in bodies that we fundamentally do not understand, right? And that's really kind of a remarkable thing, but nobody really seems to question it very much. Mm. So, uh, you know, whether or not people need to have an understanding of the the technical aspects of, of how AI functions. Um, I, I think that's kind of up in the, up in the air, but I, I do think that there should be some higher level classes covering technology, theory of techno- technological progression. Um, and uh, just so that people kind of understand, like, listen, you're not going to stop AI from, penetrating every single aspect of human life, every single one that's going to happen over the next 50 years. And uh, you need to be prepared for it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There is a, I think stepping back from it a little bit more, I think the, you know, chat GPT is this sort of this buzzword that's being thrown out right now. Right. But let's sort of 
take a step back a little bit and maybe get into the weeds here because I think it might be useful for the audience to learn about maybe what the GPT stands for. Maybe you can just sort of explain a little bit about what the GTP part is, um, what it stands for, and, and why it's sort of, uh, you know, embedded in these types of uh, nomenclature when people are talking about AI and all that stuff. So, so hopefully that will set the stage uh, for uh, what we're going to be talking about soon. Right. So, you know, very high level. These neural networks, and, and let's make no, no mistake here. These are neural networks. They are modeled after the human brain. The way that they work is a little bit different than the way that you work, but not too terribly different. And that's why the output can be so shocking and so convincing at times. Um, you know, I think it was, uh, to paraphrase Alan Turing, you know, he said something like, um, that the, at the end of the century, that general opinion will have altered so much and language will have altered so much that you'll be able to speak of machines thinking without being contradicted. Right. And, uh, he was about 20 years off, uh, but not too bad, uh, for a prediction because these, these machines are actually thinking very much in the way that, that you think. And, uh, you know, the, the generative part, um, which is really the most Im important part of, of GPT is generative. So these models are trained to generate, um, new language. Okay. And how they do it is they basically have a series of layers, neural network layers, and at each layer, it has what's called an attentional mechanism. So it's actually looking at the input, which is your prompt, right? When you're typing something into chat GPT, it's looking at that prompt and it's deciding what's important, right? Within that prompt. And it keeps iterating on, uh, at every level, it keeps paying attention to different things. And ultimately what comes out is what we call an autoregressive uh, model where it's essentially predicting the next word that should be spoken, let's say, right. Or output. And then it goes back around again and it does it again. Right. So it's continually sort of like iterating on itself in a way. And, uh, a lot of people, you know, there's been articles about, are these things sentient? Um, and, and whatnot. And I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of interesting philosophical dirt to dig there, but, uh, at least the, the opponents of that view have pointed out, Hey, these things are just word predictors, you know, um, they're, they're really doing nothing more than predicting the next word. But then that raises the question, how do they do it so well? And what are you doing when you're talking? Um, and the reason why they do it so well is that the predictions for every word, uh, or subword within the, the vocabulary are based on it having churned through and looked at, at the meaning and literally have thought through multiple layers of attention in order to derive those probabilities for, uh, every potential next word. 
So that's the the sort of iterative layer, and you've got the and, and that's also being able to generate uh, the content from existing, and that's where you have where as we alluded to before that sort of stuck stuck in time, where it's taking that snapshot from the internet up until like 2021 and then using the prompts that you're using to sort of drill down and effectively figure out um, what you're trying to say, uh, what context behind it, and then how do you then sift out the right information? And is that, is that really the, the sort of the pre-trained part of the, the, the pre-trained transformer? Yeah. I mean, uh, all of these language models are, are essentially kind of like pre-trained. And when you train one of these neural networks, it, it starts off, I mean, there's a few different ways to think about it, but you could almost start off, like think about it like a baby, right? And how a baby basically doesn't have control of its limbs, doesn't, you know, it's got very, very minimal control over its body and it, and it, and it takes time for that control to develop. But if you start a child off very young, let's say, playing piano, right? Let's say at the age of three or four. Um, and they consistently play the piano, right? Every single day for, let's say, 10 years. Well, by the time you they're 13 or 14, you're going to have a very, very talented piano player on your hands. But what you might not have is a very talented football player, right? So... Um, and, and why is that? That's because their synaptic weights have been drilled and set in their brain in such a way that they are very, very skilled at playing piano, but they're, and of course the human brain is, is built to generalize, but they're not going to be as good necessarily at something like football, right? Which is, uh, a, a far different set of skills. And what's interesting is that if you force them to go and play football, subconsciously they will be draw, drawing upon any any little piece that they've learned from playing piano in order to become a, a better football player so it's it's much the same way with these language models what's really fascinating about it is that if you look at like the size of these language models you know you're you're talking about far less than a terabyte of of data to actually represent all of these uh synaptic or or parameter weights and what's super interesting about it is that in a way, the entire internet has, has passed through this neural network during the training process to set all of those weights. They're constantly updated, constantly adjusted during that training process. So essentially what you're looking at is taking petabytes of data from the internet and compressing it into a neural network right? That's less than a terabyte to represent. And yet when you ask it a question, it can throw out all of this information that it's learned. So in one sense, these neural networks are super fascinating data compression structures. Yeah. That's the other thing I've been trying to sort of get my head around is that the internet's so big, but at the same time, it's, it's also digestible in a way that you can encapsulate all of the information that has been published that is available online mm -hmm. and then really transform that into some sort of entity. And that is this, uh, no, this uh, piece of neural network 
that is then being able to has access points that you can enter to really learn about and then structured as well um, in a, in uh, using some sort of uh, schema that allows you to figure out exactly how to connect it based on the prompt that you're requesting. And is that, do you think that's really the way, and then this is obviously I assume specifically with large language models, uh, LLMs versus let's say if you're looking at computer vision, is it a different type of a, approach versus you know images and text? No, it's 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 very much the same. I mean, some of the um, fundamental mechanisms or or architectures of these neural networks will differ. Vision neural networks tend to use what's called uh, convolutional neural networks, which again is modeled after the uh, the visual cortex. Um, but it all kind of boils down to the same thing, and certainly the principle of it. After you've trained it, if it's it's kind of set in stone unless you then begin to train it some more and update its weights, right? Um, so yeah, the, uh, all neural networks kind of have that same fundamental uh, principle. And as far as like data compression, I mean, the Earth is is fairly big. The universe is fairly big, and yet in in your brain you have a rep a representation of it, right? A very remarkable representation of the totality of the universe that you've experienced yet in a very small uh, data compression structure. When you're prompting these large language models in particular, or even, you know, when you're prompting um, image generation models, right? What you're essentially doing is you are providing input into the model that's firing neurons, Okay. And the probabilities kind of shake out of that 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 firing, um, and uh, that that's kind of like another way to to think about it. And that's why when you change your prompt, every time you're adding to that prompt, you're kind of like forcing different areas of that neural network to light up. You know, much the much the same way uh, you might see in the human brain uh, watching images on a screen during like an uh, an fMRI. Fascinating stuff. I think, you know, segueing into sort of <clears throat> the whole notion of lighting certain parts of the network up, you know, with podcasting, right? It's interesting because, you know, podcasting is not a visual platform. It's, right. it's, it's audio, but then derived under that is text. And so it becomes really interesting when you talk about AI, the future of podcasting, because podcasting has been around for such a long time and such a basic, well, not to say basic, but a, a, a rudimentary way of communicating. We just ask, ask two people talking or more than one person talking and, or maybe a person doing a monologue and it's just feeding. And I think the technology has changed over time, but the idea of communicating with one another is, is definitely still there. And I want to understand a little bit about how AI is coming into that sp that sphere of podcast. And I, I want to sort of learn about what your thoughts are in terms of like, is this a good thing where creators, podcast host producers are able to leverage something like AI 
um, like ChatGPT3, for example, and then be able to use that for their advantages. And what does that look like going forward as well? As well, is this something that's going to really revolutionize um, what podcasting is, and and or is it going to disrupt it in a negative way, where perhaps even you know the AI itself can generate its own podcasts down the road? And that's sort of a, a far flung question, but I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll love to sort of get your thoughts on that. Right. Well, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways in which, um, AI will be utilized in, in the podcasting space. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> it's really almost infinite because you're, you're dealing with, uh, with an audio medium, right? So if I were to list, list off just very quickly, all of the different ways in which AI applies to podcasting. First, you have, uh, you know, voice faking and voice generation companies like Descript, um, have some really cool tech around this, uh, which is just utterly remarkable, right? Very, very cool magic. Um, so you have that, you have audio cleansing. Um, uh, Adobe has their podcast recording offering, I think has some really cool tech around taking, uh, you know, a lower quality mic or somebody even talking on their iPhone and then running that through a neural network that basically makes them sound like they're coming out of a sure mic. Um, and it's so amazing because the neural network is literally imagining what they would sound like and then out outputting that, uh, super cool. And then of course you have, uh, ASR or speech to text transcription, moving everything out of the audio domain and into the textual domain. And then once you have it in the textual domain, you know, every, every bit of technology applies from, you know, uh, every large language model out there, and there's not just generative lang language models. There's other language models that do um, extractive question answering, specific summarization, entity extraction, all kinds of different um, tasks, right? As far as the, the generation, like whole cloth, I think there's even been some really interesting examples. If I recall, there, there was one where Steve Jobs and Joe Rogan we're having a conversation and basically somebody had uh, a generative model. I'm guessing GPT three based on the quality generate uh, a, a dialogue conversation between Joe Rogan and Steve jobs, and then used uh, audio deep faking voice, deep faking uh, tech and, and speech to text to essentially generate whole cloth, a fake podcast between two real people, one of them deceased, which never happened, you know? And um, I, I think that's a really cool novelty. My, my personal perspective on it is, you know, to your point, podcasting is really just a technology, right? Um, it's, it's audio recording. Humans have been talking to one another and wanting to listen to people talk since the the dawn of speech, right? So this is really a, a human thing. And I think the interesting thing about podcasts in particular, especially as it applies to um, them being l merely listened to rather than, than watched is that there's something about just listening um, that draws your attention. It, it narrows your attention. And there's something intimate and there's something nuanced 
about that particular um, form of media. But it also does have drawbacks. It's fundamentally opaque, right? So you can scroll along the timeline of a video and have a, a shot of everything that's happening at a point in time. But audio doesn't afford you that, right? At any point in time to figure out what's happening there, typically you have to listen. So really like what we've been trying to do with Fathom is to figure out ways to, uh, you know, remove some of that opaqueness with say chapter generation and with search. Right. Um, and of course, in order to, to pull those kinds of things off, uh, the first step of that process really is using AI to, to take, uh, everything that's been spoken and, and then turn it into text. And that technology, um, has really, improved by leaps and bounds, you know, thank you, open AI for releasing those whisper models. Uh, they're, they're pretty incredible. The, the reduction of barriers to entry has significantly gone down for anyone to create a podcast. Now, I, and I know what you're talking about when it comes to show notes and timestamps and all those things. Right. And I think for a long time, a lot of people have sort of asked the question, what if, something like AI was able to generate this for us. And that definitely, you know, reduces a lot of friction. Uh, and I know that a lot of folks that I speak to friends, they obviously will want to do their own thing, but they feel like it's a mountain to climb because you've got to have not just the gear, but also you've got to have the, the, the right setup, but also then you have to think about how you're going to market the episode as well and all right. those things. So for now as, as sort of the whole podcasting space is, you know, it's continuing to grow uh, for, for many, many years now. Uh, the What I guess you're doing there at Fathom with Podium and, and all that stuff is really groundbreaking and hopefully will add some value to that. Do you want to explain a little bit about what, the podium stuff is. I think it's probably a new thing that's coming out, uh, but it'd be really interesting just to hear about what it actually does and how it actually can help uh, a lot of the podcast creators out there. We essentially started with Fathom, which is kind of like a next generation podcast player um, that's heavily driven by artificial intelligence, right? We use it for recommendation. You can search through shows, ask questions, get answers. It's pretty incredible. Um, in the course of trying to develop a podcast player that, that could really, really compete with something like Spotify or Apple, just from an experience standpoint, um, we ended up training many proprietary like neural networks, um, in order to do some, some advanced things like chapter generation certainly is one, um, clipping, right? So, so if you, want to save some information at a point in time, we have clipping models that will look at what you were listening to and then go backwards and forwards in time to create a coherent thought out of the audio, right? That has, has like a coherent um, and reasonable start point and a reasonable end point. So it just doesn't do it like, oh, let's go three sentences back and three sentences forward. No. We use AI to try to capture the information. So we developed a lot of um, AI technology to produce the Fathom player. And um, 
you know, we, we kind of took a look at everything we had done and we said, you know, we really think that a lot of this tech could benefit podcasters or, or make their job easier. Right. So we decided to uh, launch podium, which you can find at podium.page. And what podium does is you upload your audio where we automatically generate your show notes, extract keywords. We generate chapters for your episode, chapter summaries for your episode. We give you a transcript and we also extract highlights from your episode. And, um, you know, we kind of put this out there really quick. The response has been absolutely fantastic. Very, very exciting. Um, and it's continue, it's continually improving. You know, it's going to have an actual user interface, not just a, uh, a download package, uh, in the next few weeks here, we will be at, um, podcast movement in Las Vegas expoing, uh, in just, uh, I think a couple of few weeks here. So very excited about that. And the whole idea behind it is get podcasters back to podcasting, right? Um, it takes a lot of work to try to market your content once you're done with it. Um, but with podium, you can take that episode hot off the mic, run it through, boom, you've got show notes, you've got everything broken into chapters, which is huge for listeners because listen, maybe you can't get them for the full hour, right? But if you can get them for seven minutes for a chapter, they see that they're interested in now you, th that's how you build up new listeners. Okay. So, um, we're very excited about it. The response has been uh, really incredible and it's only going to get better, uh, from here. There, there's a lot of ideas we have around some uh, new features and functionality that we think, uh, podcasters are, are really going to like, I think in the end, what you'll get after you upload an episode is just a full package, a full media package to start, you know, spreading through all of the various media channels to try to build your audience. And again, it, it, it is AI. So your show notes, are they perfect? No, no, they're, they're not. Um, especially, you know, when it comes to like a variety of content, fictional content versus news information, clippy type podcast versus long form conversation. Um, but it definitely gives you a starting place and a set of, uh, ideas to, to edit, which oftentimes is much, much faster than, um, trying to produce all the content yourself. I think that with the way that podium is built now, it probably will save you on average. If you were to try to produce all the content yourself, it probably saves you a few hours of time. Minimum. Yeah. That's the, that's the crazy thing about it. I, I gave it a whirl probably like a couple of weeks ago with just a, a previous podcast that I did, you know, uploaded my file and then I was quite surprised by the level of accuracy, but also the way it presented the information. It was just a text file and I'm sure that will be improved, but the, the content itself was really valuable. And I was double checking my own timestamps that I created. It wasn't far off. It wasn't bad. And I think that that was really cool to see. And I, I do agree. It's going to save a lot of time and definitely will hopefully be a false, uh, force multiplier for a lot of the podcast creators out there. Yeah, eventually we will have a full-blown UI around um, all of those markers where you'll be able to actually, within the transcript itself, adjust where those markers are. So those markers will essentially serve as a starting point, right, um, for, say, like chapter breaks. And then you'll be able to adjust them yourself slightly if you, if you want to. But it takes a lot less time <laughs> to adjust a chapter break. Than it takes to reread through an hour long conversation 
and figure out where all those breaks are supposed to be in the first place. Um, and that's, that's really, I, I think one of the, the very remarkable things about, about podium in general. Yeah. With the show notes and the timestamps have, because you have the fathom player, I'm sure you're receiving and you're seeing a lot of data flow through on your side. Is there something, is there something to speak to in terms of the attention span of people when they listen to these podcasts, because listening to a three hour podcast is not everyone's cup of tea. So, but if you have timestamps and you have show notes and all of those things where you can easily scroll back and forth, do you see more, most of your listeners and people, the users of Fathom, do they sort of hone in on specific timestamps and then sort of move on to the next episode? Or do you see the, them still listening to the full episode? I'd like to understand a little bit about the, the dynamics of what the users are actually doing with these podcasts. You know, one of the things I've been most surprised at in entering the podcast space with a player, especially with a new kind of player like Fathom, where you have things like highlights, right, that are being AI generated. You've got chapters. You have a full transcript that you can read through and then jump to a certain spot. Is that everybody's different? Everybody has a different listening style. You know, you'll have people that literally will listen to a three hour episode front to back nonstop. I've never done that in, in, in my life. You know, um, I'm actually one of those nighttime listeners. I actually like to listen before I go to sleep. And so I'll put on a sleep timer for like, you know, 30 or 45 minutes. And so it may take me quite a bit of time to get through a three hour episode, a three hour episode that that might be a week of listening for me. Whereas for somebody else, they'll, they'll listen to it, you know, straight through. You have other people that do an hour at a time. Um, and now with things like, uh, chapter generation or, you know, th th there have been some podcasters, right? That will chapterize their content. It's about 3%. Um, but in general, there's, there's a lot that don't. So what happens or, or how does having chapters fundamentally change? people's behavior, right? When now the top thousand podcasts or the top, you know, processing about, you know, five or 6,000 podcasts now at this point, <clears throat> but chapter generation, I think only applies to about uh, 2000 or 2,500. What happens when people have access to these things and what happens is what you'd expect. You know, people will scroll through, they'll jump to a chapter that, that interests them. Um, but the way that fathom in I think some initial responses from podcasters would be like, well, I don't want that. I want them listening to all of my content, right? Including the ads at the beginning, right? So, um, but ultimately what, what we find is just a higher overall level of engagement with a podcaster's content in general. And when you have those chapters, it makes it easier for the AI to extract highlights to play to people during a, a discovery process. So it's, it's kind of good overall. There's, there's no bad listening, right? Um, because today they may only have seven minutes to listen to that one chapter that they really like, but then you publish your next episode and it's on a topic that's extremely relevant to them. And then you find that they listen to the whole thing. Whereas maybe they never would have paid attention to you at all if they hadn't 
seen that one chapter and, and played it. Right. So, um, overall, I think that f- new discovery mechanisms, uh, for podcast content is, is a very positive thing for creators. Yes, there's definitely that element of even in the timestamps or the show notes themselves, there's always that notion of how do you make that like, uh, you know, some sort of interest to the, to the, to the listeners to get them hooked into the actual timestamp, right. the, mm-hmm. the actual, you know, slot itself, the clip. So I think there's an element to that even as well, because a lot of folks, especially on YouTube, there's a lot of energy put into the thumbnail and the titling yeah. and that's like 99% of the effort. And so the whole notion of trying to now, well, how do you take that and then bring it to podcasting? Well, you can't really see thumbnails unless you're looking through or you can't see a, a, a video replay of what's happening. It's only the audio that really speaks to you. So think the show notes, the whole notion of like thumbnail uh, timestamps is going to be much more exciting, especially when the AI element comes into it as well. Right. Um, you know, we can do things like recommend, uh, and this is not a feature that, that we've shipped yet, but, um, for any episode, we can actually recommend a chapter for you based on your past listening. We can say this chapter is one you definitely want to listen to. Um, you know, we can even do, uh, we can do a variety of things with, with the audio content. You know, if you only have three minutes, but you want to get the gist of the entire episode, right. But you're at the end of your lunch break, right. Um, you know, we can compress an episode in, into five minutes. And I think this raises a lot of questions about advertising and things like that. Um, but generally speaking, what I found in, in product is that if you offer people, uh, a superior experience, right, you're going to get more of their attention, uh, in in the long run. So I think the future is very bright for podcasting. You know, I, I think that, um, as far as all the generative stuff goes, I think people like hearing the real voices of, of real human beings. Um, I think that that's what's most interesting and that when it comes to the generative stuff, it's, it's really going to be used more for information compression and for information um, filtration potentially. Um, but as far as like the content itself, like I, I We'll have to see, but um, I, I, I could be wrong, wrong on this one, but I, I have kind of an intuitive feeling that people are going to want to listen to real people talking for many hundreds of years to come, if not thousands. I feel like, I don't know, I, I get this impression, like the, you mentioned the Steve Jobs and Joe Rogan thing. I think that's mm-hmm. just, there's a novelty, there's a novelty around that, which is pretty cool. And imagine if like, you know, someone like, oh, you know, Barack Obama or Donald Trump, you know, they've probably, they've never had a proper one-on-one conversation with each other. Imagine what that conversation would look like. And I think there's some real cool things that can come with the journey of AI. And that sort of segues into the question of like, what if AI was to produce its own content? And I, I don't know what that looks like, but I feel like there's some really kooky stuff that could happen. And especially when it comes to misinformation as well. 
and you know when it comes to sort of the ethical of the ethical part of what am i listening to is am i am i actually listening to something that's truth uh true in some sense or is this completely false so i i guess there is an element of care that needs to be taken when podcast gets to a level where information is generated um from a particular source and even i mean i mean you, you can say that today with people like people always spread misinformation right. all the time i mean listen There's people no, have been doing this for a long AI. time and uh yeah you, you're not really getting anything different with ai i i think the fundamental danger with ai when it comes to misinformation um is just that it can be presented in a way that seems even let's say more authoritative than a human who's coming at you with that, that perspective. I mean, typically perspectives tend to have a certain, um, level of, uh, you know, perspectives come in a package, let's say, and it's that package that really helps you identify, is this something that I want to buy into? Right. Um, partially one of the dangers with AI is that it can present misinformation or even disinformation in a, uh, very different kind of package than it would typically come in. Right. And so, you know, like most things, listener beware. Um, I think ultimately it's, it's up to all of us to, you know, to the best of our abilities, fact check our fact check our own information and um, not just buy into everything that that we hear. Don't believe it if, just because it's on the internet, you know. I think that's that's true in so many ways. I, I think also with like what Fathom is doing as well, because now you have like Podium, which is great for the podcasting uh, podcast creators. You have right. Fathom Player, which is great for the uh, the listeners. I remember a long time ago, well, not so much a long time ago, but you were, the, the, the premise of Fathom was to really engage the search part of it and to right. say, okay, well, if you were to ask a question, um, just like you would with ChatGPT now, um, would I get content that would answer that question, i.e. the meaning of life, you know, anything to do mm -hmm. with, you know, philosophy, whatever it may be. And so is that still going? And if, and if so, are you using ChatGPT to leverage those capabilities right, right now? So, yeah. So the Fathom player still, still performs that style of search um, along with uh, traditional keyword search and general semantic AI powered search. It can do question answering uh, search. So, when you are searching fathom, you can ask a question like, uh, what is the fundamental nature of consciousness or, um, you know, what, um, uh, what's happening in the startup world. And it will actually look, search through podcasts and then use AI to actually answer those questions. Um, you can also do that for an individual podcaster's content, which is really cool. So if you go to Huberman lab, right. And you ask, uh, what effect does caffeine have on our body? You're going to get a series of clips that directly answer that question, um, which is really neat. That style of artificial intelligence or th that style of, of AI task is what's called extractive question answering. So 
we're actually looking, having the AI look at a body of text and uh, tell us whether or not there's an answer contained to a question within that body of text. And if so, where, where is it, right? Um, we are not currently using uh, any generative models uh, to supplement that search. It's something that we could do very, very quick um, if, if we wanted to, because, and in a very, very advanced way. I mean, there's been some examples of this out there. Um, there are, odd, with all those examples, you also do see a lot of hallucination problems, um, which, which can be problematic. But I think that's balanced out a little bit if you reference the source material, right, for the answer. Um, and so it's, it's kind of up in the air still whether or not we'll, we'll ultimately go down that road of including, you know, uh, GPT generative responses on top of everything else. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what, when we first started working on Fathom, we were really, we started with that search engine. And the interesting thing is that to build that kind of search engine, there's a lot of processing that needs to happen that fundamentally over time has enabled a variety of other um, AI piece of functionality like highlight extraction, chapter generation, recommendation, simple, similar episode and similar podcast computation. That's why. Oh, and I point about, are, are we still doing that? So what we found is that it's just not something that people do often enough, right? So, um, people use Google all the time. Um, people now use chat GPT all of the time. But the idea that, oh, I'm going to search the podcast space, it might be, it's, it's incredibly useful to have when you need it, right? And we have a sense that it's going to be incredibly useful for podcasters themselves to search their back catalog. Um, so you can count on that being included as part of Podium over time. Um, but for a listener, it's just not something that they do frequently enough. It's like something that maybe you need to do once a month. Um, so really, we've focused on other aspects of the experience and how AI can apply to other aspects of the listening experience, like AI clipping, dynamic clipping on the fly, awesome highlight generation, chapter generation, transcript reading, right, um, etc. What's uh, what's the journey been like for you and and sort of starting Fathom? Because I think you know, you, you are a co-founder, you're the CTO as well. And I think I definitely want to get to some of those things soon, but just working with the co-founders, working with mm. building Fathom um, over these past couple of years, what's that journey been like for you personally, but also uh, from a professional career standpoint as well? In some sense, it's been uh, incredibly rewarding. Um, I can most certainly say that I've worked harder than I've ever worked in my entire life. You know, um, for any startup founders out there listening to this, I mean, you just need to be prepared for 70, 80 hour weeks, nonstop months and months on end. I think my longest stretch was like eight months of, of 80 hour weeks. Um, and, but it has to be done, especially if, if you, consumer plays in general are very, very difficult especially if you're going up against some something like Spotify, right? Or Apple Podcasts or other uh, very well-funded players who are trying to make moves. Um, so generally, just don't start a startup unless that's what you are going to do. Um, and it's what you're prepared to do for the long run. 
Um, don't start, don't start a startup unless internally you have to. And for me, it was, uh, definitely something that I had to do. Uh, I even kind of after working with, uh, the, uh, the fundamental AI model, I, I, that still actually incidentally is kind of at the core of Fathom. I had, I had set it aside for, for a minute, but I kept getting these like weird little signs <laughs> left and right. You know, uh, you know, if you want to say they're like, you know, Jungian synchronicities from the universe, right. Uh, that were just taking me right back and saying like, no, you need to do this. You, this is the thing you need to build. And uh, I've always been super into language um, always been, uh, really big into engineering and, and AI. So, uh, you know, I decided to take the leap, leave my position as chief research officer of another startup that, you know, uh, is in the, the B2B space and, and do it. And it's been incredibly rewarding, like I said, but also very challenging. You know, you, you need to be prepared to, uh, you know, as Jason, as Jason's, uh, sign and back from says, do the work. Uh, and you will be doing the work. Absolutely. And having a co-founder, Paul, you know, um, my co-founder, uh, it's, it, it, it'll strain any relationship. I can, I can absolutely say that, you know, uh, maybe some, f uh, founders out there would like to uh, paint a different picture, but it, it, when you're in a pressure cooker, it's going to put strain on, on any relationship. And Paul and I have been friends for, um, like 20 years now. And, uh, even in all that, you know, uh, you, you definitely find your relationship strained at times and it's, it's nothing personal. It's really, I think just the pressure of the situation, but at the end of the day, I feel like our relationship has been like forged in fire now, you know, and it's, it's even stronger than ever. And we're so excited about this um, podium offering and the response and super stoked to be going out to, to Vegas to, uh, to expo at podcast movement. It's, it's really refreshing to hear that. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of people listening to this right now who are one interested in AI it could be too interested in podcasting and three, maybe they're sort of like gung ho about starting their own thing as well. Right. And so I think a lot of them will hear this and say to say, okay, well, you know, all the things about the, the, you know, the, rom the romanticization of startups is probably not, um, especially happening anymore, given the whole situation at the market and everything and right. funding. But at the same time, it is still rewarding and you, as you said, you got to do the work, you got to do the hours. As a technology leader, I think CEOs obviously have that responsibility, but I, I want to put a, a, a spotlight on CTO specifically because mm -hmm. technology companies don't start by themselves. The technology needs to be developed. It needs to be created. It needs to be honed. Right. What was the, the challenges for you and also the insights you gain from becoming sort of a technology leader and building a team, you know, hiring the right people and the difference between hiring the right people versus the top people. Um, you know, what sort of insights can you shed on what it means to build a fully functional engineering team that does, that builds cool stuff? 
I mean, this, this isn't my, you know, I'm, I'm definitely an older founder. This is not my first rodeo. Um, but, uh, I, I think at a lot of other companies, I had come into the leadership positions once the company had already been established for a minute, or I was bring being brought in to do a turnaround, you know, maybe they'd been stuck at a, you know, a million and a half revenue for the last four years, kind of wasn't going anywhere. They'd been around for 10 years. And so then I would be brought in to um, kind of flip the script and start to get those revenue numbers growing again. Um, so this has been definitely different. And this is the first time I've been in the hot seat, raising the dough, securing the bag, and at the same time doing all of the uh, engineering and also building out the engineering team. Um, I, I think what I've learned is that it's, it's hard to find. <laughs> I mean, I haven't learned anything that hasn't been kind of a uh, colloquialism for, for the last hundred years, right? It's hard to find good help. Um, you know, I would say err on the side of talent, um, even if it costs a bit more because let's say you save 50%, right? Um, and get a slightly like a lesser experienced engineer. Generally, what I found is, um, and again, this is all subject to the complexity of the problem that you're trying to solve. But if you're trying to build complicated software, right? Not government software. Uh, that 50% you're saving may cost you more time uh, as a CTO. Uh, to go in and then, you know, resolve code issues, uh, restructure things. So, and the only way to really avoid that is if you spec things out in a very definitive manner up front, but then that costs you more time, right? So I definitely wouldn't say that it's a requirement to get the top of the top tier talent, unless you're really looking for um, uh, kind of like an all-star team with all-star well-known names, that's going to be very expensive either in compensation or certainly it's probably going to end up coming out in equity. Um, and Hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of cutting big chunks for, for contributing members of the team. You know, um, I think that's only right, but, uh, you definitely want to make sure that the members of your team that you have are going to be very much independent contributors. Um, and you're not going to have to, um, unwind the knots that they're tying left and right, you know? Um, and I mean, a great example of this is, uh, our head of research, Dr. Yovis Gonzalez. Um, and also maybe a great example of like knowing when to take a bet on somebody, right? So Dr. Gonzalez is a quantum physicist who actually came to me when I was uh, chief research officer over at uh, Intrinio. I had, I, I had made the, uh, the swift and beautiful move after, you know, 20 years of professional software engineering. I, I saw the light. The, the ultimate goal wasn't to be CTO. No, 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 no. You want to be chief research officer <laughs> because the chief research officer isn't woken up at 2.30 a.m. every morning. Um, putting out fires constantly. So I was actually able to make that kind of like uh, side shift. And I, I was very happy in that position. Um, but uh, we were hiring some machine learning engineers and Yoelvis had had applied. 
And I kind of looked at his background, you know, and it was all in like chemical <laughs> quantum physics, had published like 40 research papers. And I really enjoyed our conversation and the work that he had submitted and the problem was, was solid. You know, I mean, it definitely didn't look like something you'd expect from a high level software engineer, <clears throat> but, um, and ultimately I, I had passed on him a, as a hire. And he wrote me back and he, and he was like, listen, I got to tell you, I know you're, I know I don't have the experience. You're making a big mistake. I know what I can do. I know what I can do. And uh, I started to read back through some of his papers. I mean, half of it, I couldn't understand. I'm not a, a chemical quantum. It was like computational chemical quantum physics, just really far out there stuff. But I don't know. There was just something about him. You know, he, he convinced me and, uh, I ended up hiring him at Intrinio and he did amazing work, just absolutely out of control, uh, stuff. And then ultimately they ended up, um, having to, to downsize a bit and he was freed up and I'm like, no, I got that guy, you know? So you Elvis came on board and he's kind of been with us uh, since very early on. And he's just an absolute slayer, you know, so hardworking, always, um, just stoked, you know, to kind of be in the AI space and being do, doing cool stuff. So if you don't, if you can't find somebody who's got experience that's at the right price point, go for spirit. Spirit can take you a long way. You said about that. And I, I know that there's a lot of people and probably, you know, VPs of engineering, people who are right. at the hiring level and they have to make decisions about the right people to, to bring on. And so, you know, obviously the pricing is the price point might be difficult, but also the, 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 the demeanors, the, the people themselves, and are they even excited to be working in the space? I think that speaks true to the story that you just mentioned, but also the a lesson as well for um, upcoming CTOs and leaders to figure out, well, you know, everyone is not going to be at the level um, but at least there's going to be, they're going to be there to willing to learn and willing to, um, you know, do whatever it takes and wear as many hats. And that's where you need sort of the hustle when it comes to building, um, a startup. Um, absolutely. And so, and so I, I think that's really cool. And I think that will help a lot of, uh, people listening to this, um, figure out what their own team composition, uh, looks like. Do you, do you think that? as you start to scale and mm -hmm. you know, your role as that leader evolves, mm -hmm. is that going to um, change somewhat? Or do you think that you'll be, whatever you're doing now will be whatever you will do as, you know, as the company starts to grow and, and expand, you know, what does that role of the CTO leader change over time? Right. Well, and you know, I, at least I personally haven't heard a lot of talk about this. Like, what are you going to be doing as a CTO? Right. So on a day to day basis, I will write code in Swift, Python, JavaScript, HTML and CSS. Of course, I'll be doing design. Uh, I will be jumping back and forth between 35 different uh, code repos that we've developed. Um, and. You know, and like, I, I actually have a timer that, that I hit. And as soon as I hit that timer, I cannot scroll. I cannot check Twitter. I cannot do anything until that timer goes off. 
then that timer goes off. You know what I do? I hit it again. Right. And I just keep doing that all day long. So, um, at these very early stages, you're going to be building everything yourself. Okay. And if you're not a technical founder, you're going to be finding somebody who is going to be building everything them- themselves, or you're going to go with an agency, right? A lot easier if you actually have uh, the technical co-founder um, as part of your team, certainly. So that's what it looks like in the beginning. Um, I'm so lucky, lucky to have you Elvis because I, the technical side of AI, if you are training your own models, is extraordinarily complicated, right? And uh, or can be, and it takes a lot of time, a lot of testing. It's R and D. Things don't. It's like picking a lock. It's not like um, you know framing a house. So it can take time to do that. And um, I think if you have an AI startup, you you definitely almost want two technical people. One who is a full stack, very experienced engineer capable of grinding nonstop across the entire stack. And then another who uh, can focus um, just on AI and AI training and and things of that sort. If you are going to be developing your own models, I could not, I couldn't do the whole full stack thing every day and be doing all of the AI engineering. So there is all of that. That will change um, as as we scale. I mean, the it, it all depends on ultimately like who we end up hiring. Um, you know, typically you would hire a VP of engineering to start doing your recruitment and building out of um, you know team clusters. But uh, certainly, you know, um, as the team kind of grows into like five, 10 engineers, I'm going to be delegating a lot of work, but you're going to have specific individuals in positions who will be running an entire aspect of the engineering picture. So you will have one person doing DevOps, one person, you know, um, primarily uh, focused on AI or primarily focused on the back end. Another person who's just primarily focused on the front end. And then from there, each one of those individuals then becomes the leader of a pod of individuals who is focused on that one particular uh, aspect. Um, so I think over time, and then to a greater and greater extent over time, I will be writing less and less code. Um, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing because you don't want to be a uh, you, you don't want to be a blocker for for the team. You really need to hang up your code chops. Do something on the side in what little free time you have to keep your your samurai <laughs> samurai uh, sword sharp. Um, you don't want that to get rusty in case you got to jump in. But uh, yeah, you, you really do need to learn how to delegate. And th- there's this whole thing in startups. You know, sometimes the right person to kick things off is not the right person to scale them up. And uh, I, I think that you have to have a little bit of self awareness if you're going to try to be both of those people. Good. All of those qualities are essential and, and not everyone is geared to be working at a startup and everyone wants to, you know, some folks want to just do a certain role and, and, and not wear multiple things because it can be quite overwhelming. So I think you definitely have to jump into certain situations when you need to. Um, and that's a testament to, to see the, when you do hire those people, 
that's the qualities that you look for. And I think that's really exciting to, to see um, what, you, what you're building um, over there yeah. at Fathom. Uh, to tell things off quickly, you know, I think there's a lot of also people who are AI enthusiasts right now and probably right. they're in, I don't know, high school or uh, college or whatever it may be. And mm -hmm. they want to, they're seeing what's happening. They're looking at right. the news. They're seeing all the stuff that's coming their way. And they say, look, I want to jump on because I think this is really cool stuff and I really could help the world in whatever it, I can. And mm -hmm. what is your advice to them to could be a few things getting into the space, you know, what right. are there resources, are there communities I can join and, you know, what should I do to, to make sure that I stick out so that when I do want to be hired as an engineer or someone who wants to be involved in AI, what do I need to show, show for myself uh, that I'm, I've got what it takes to, to be in, in, to be in this space. What, what can you sort of say to that? Well, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of come into AI um, as an engineer. I like to think about things from like uh, kind of like a, a principle standpoint. So one principle in engineering is that in order to become uh, or achieve an expert level of proficiency at any level of the stack, um, you need to have a fundamental um, understanding, uh, like you need to have a, a deep first principles understanding of the level immediately beneath it, right? So what does this mean? It means that if you're writing assembler code, you need to understand how transistor networks work and how they're able to actually execute Boolean logic. If you're writing C code, you need to understand how ASM works. If you're writing, uh, you know, Python, you need to understand how C works and on and on and on up the sort of chain of abstractions. When it comes to AI, I, what I'm seeing a lot of is I'm seeing a lot of people jump into AI and utilizing these models without actually understanding that one level uh, below. And I think if anything, that's dangerous, you know, because if you don't understand how these things actually work at a, at a fundamental intuitive level, if you don't grok it, then, um, you know, you don't really know what you're doing. You're kind of coding by coincidence. Um, so what you need in order to do that, I mean, listen, everybody's going to come at this different for some people. The best way for them to engage personally is going to be to join some kind of group, right? Um, for other people, it's going to be to go to school and get their master's in mathematics and then their PhD. For me, I'm always kind of, you know, I can only kind of speak from my own perspective. I've always been uh, very much like an autodidact self-learner type. Um, and uh, what I just kind of knew would need to be done is you need to go really deep into four different branches of mathematics. You need probability theory, statistics, linear algebra, and you need calculus. Specifically on the calculus side, you're going to need to have a strong understanding of derivatives and partial derivatives. If you can get, the good news is you can get all that for free. Okay. There's Khan Academy. There's Wikipedia. There's chat GPT, right? You don't even need to go to school. <laughs> Just ask chat GPT to teach you. It'll even, you can even ask it to quiz you and it will quiz you and it will grade your answers. It's ridiculous. What a time to be alive. So, uh, but you need all four of those branches of mathematics to have a baseline understanding. 
And uh, if you really, really want to become an AI engineer, regardless of whether you're kind of like just started college or maybe you're in high school, right? Maybe you're a freshman in high school. Math is really your thing. You kind of see the writing on the wall and you want to get started. Probability theory, statistics, linear algebra, calculus, get that all down. And then what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to derive stochastic gradient descent all by yourself. Okay. And then in Python, you want to be able to code your own neural network, not using PyTorch, not using Keras, not using it. No, 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 no shortcuts. You need to code it from scratch. And uh, if you can do that, you are well on your way to becoming an AI engineer. That is definitely a wise and sage advice for people uh, learning. And, and yeah, you're right. You know, I think AI has been democratized and it's now available for everyone's use. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. <laughs> okay. Absolutely not. But I think <clears throat> that there is this element of like, it's easy for people to jump into the space quite easily. So right. the friction has been removed. But at the same time, if you want to do good stuff, then just like anything, there are multiple abstraction layers to go through. And so it's not just one using the model that's given to you, but maybe understanding the model. Why was the model created? Understanding the, the, the processes and the fundamental thoughts that went into building the model and then go from there. Because I think that it can be given in many cases to you on a civil platter and I'll just use this. But if you don't know when to use the right model and in what cases and scenarios, that could be somewhat detrimental as well. To your point, just understanding the, the fundamental limitations and knowing when it's time to train your own model. And if you don't have all of that math background, when it comes time to train your own model, you're going to be cracking the books one way or the other. <laughs> there's, there's no way around it. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, Last question is really just in terms of sort of the future of everything that we've discussed. And I think, you know, you, we spoke about this earlier and, and I want to understand just from your own personal perspective, you know, right. what are you hoping to see out of all of this, whether it be podcasting, Fathom, AI, if you were to craft your own future and, you know, see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, what are you hoping to to gain out of all this? Or oh, not not just gain, but just how do you? What do you want to to see happen? Um, you know, as as this fusion takes place uh, amongst all of these you know spaces uh, coming into into one. Right. It's kind of interesting when I I just got this office, and um, I remember when I was coming in to sign the lease. Uh, my, my neighbor in the office right next to me was, was sitting there and, uh, she was like, Oh, you know, what, what do you do? And I'm like, Oh, I'm an AI engineer. I have a startup. And she's like, Oh, so you're one of those people trying to replace all of us human beings. Right. And I thought about that for a second. I'm like, Hmm, that's, that's interesting. Uh, and I basically said like, no, I'm trying to give everybody superpowers. <laughs> so I, I think ultimately, uh, from a practical standpoint, I, I would like to see, I think it's really important as information has been exploding. Here's my, my thing. I don't think we're in the information age anymore. I, I, I really think that we've entered into the age of cognition and that 50, a hundred years from now in the history books, chat GPT will actually be that kind of like 
because it was really the tech was around for a couple years before, but the public release of it and entering into the public consciousness will be seen as that turning point into the age of cognition and ultimately perhaps like Ray Kurzweil's singularity. Um, so from a practical standpoint, I, I think that you have to enter the age of cognition once you've entered the age of information because there will be too much information. You need to be able to cognize that information using machines so that it can find the information you need from the massive bin of information from the explosion, right? So I, I think that those kind of like informational superpowers are are what I'm really looking forward to. Obviously, within the next 20, 30 years, you just get used to it. There will be robots walking around everywhere doing a variety of things. Um, and I think that's really interesting from a practical standpoint too. Whether or not it'll make humans fundamentally happier though, mm, I, I think that's still up in the air. And ultimately from a kind of higher philosophical level, I uh, am really hoping that, so for instance, here, here's kind of like an interesting thought experiment, right? So we have these AIs now and they can write essays in a blink of an eye. It can do art in a blink of an eye. All of these very high level skills that as human beings, we call intelligence, right? And kind of like elevate up on a silver platter and we say, this is intelligence. And yet, where is my AI that can go down to Home Depot, and uh, which is like a hardware store here in the States and, and pick out a flower and go plant it in my garden? Where's that AI? Right. Simplest thing. Any, any human being can do that really. And so I, I think it's, it's really striking that this simple thing that the human organism is able to do at such an incredible level of proficiency completely, uh, you know, perplexes all of our understanding from AI, all of our technological progress. And yet, we can do all of these essays and all this art and stuff. So what I'm hoping is that humanity uh, uses this opportunity to really get to know yourself and really question who is it that's seeing your neural networks output. And uh, maybe as a first step, who's writing your prompts, <laughs> you know? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting, and I think for for me, I I'm hoping that AI will will supplement humanity and not replace it. And I think that's where I see it going. Yeah, um, ChatGPT is a good example of that. It can be abused in some cases, but I think it's a beautiful tool that can be used as, and especially as, as you're filtering information to you, you just want to get the best bits at the end of the day. And right. all of that is just noise. And so you want to use things like AI and, and all of these amazing uh, magical tools to, to help with that. And I think especially with Fathom, with Podium, especially within the podcasting space and even beyond perhaps, I think that's going to be uh, an, another tool that's going to help people get engaged with content, with exciting content that they can learn and improve themselves and be better people. Um, and I think that's worth, uh, worth uh, uh, you know, pursuing, um, you know, uh, something like that as well. But, yeah, uh, I, I think that humans 
don't count human beings out. I think we, we underestimate the power, the raw power of the human mind and certainly perhaps underestimate the importance of, uh, that phenomenal qualitative human sense of spirit. And, um, and I, I don't think humans are going anywhere. And I think AI, if we use it correctly, um, is just going to, uh, well, let's just say a lot of cool stuff's going to happen over the next 50 years. Great. Thank you so much, Ken. It was really great to speak to you. Um, and we'll put all this information in the show notes, uh, Fathom, um, you know, social, whatever you need, and hopefully get people connected to, to you or to what you're building. And I think this, it's going to be an exciting time. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So great talking to you, Barry. Adios. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you made it this far and like the content, please subscribe, like, and share it with your family, friends, colleagues, coworkers, and even your frenemies. You can find most of our episodes on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, and YouTube. Thank you again for taking the time to listen and hopefully walking away learning something new. Goodbye for now, and I'll see you next time.